Lord, I thank you that you are present in this place right now. How lovely your presence is. How lovely is your dwelling place. I pray, Father, that you just settle upon us, that you just still us. And I pray, Lord, that if these words are from you, that they'll land in the right places. You're an amazing God, an incredible Father. And you're so good to us. And we just long to know you more, to find ourselves in you, to abide in you all the days of our life ever-praising. In your mighty name, amen. James asked if I would share about worship. And um, worship is huge, (laughs) and we could talk about it for days. And so I feel like this might just be scratching the surface, or if worship was a room, it might be a corner. Know that there is so much more But I pray that this is encouraging um, in some way. And I just actually just want to start by thanking our worship team here. And you guys are are amazing. You are, I don't just say that, yeah. I want to thank you. (laughs) David and I both want to honor you. And we appreciate the hours that you pour in. All the early mornings, and some of you are on week after week. (laughs) <laughs> you know, whether it's playing and then sound or, hosp- you know, there's multiple rosters going on. And um, the way you serve, the way it's so genuine um, and real and honest uh, is beautiful and a thing of beauty. Um, and we want to thank you. I'm going to start by reading just a little quote from N.T. Wright. Worship is nothing more nor less than love on its knees before the beloved. Worship is nothing more nor less than love on its knees before the beloved. I love this quote. It speaks to me of a worship that is flowing from a heart that laid down in humility before the Father. A heart that has met with divine love and is responding in adoration. Love on its knees. A heart not afraid to bear itself, to be vulnerable in the presence of the Holy One. A heart that is being formed not before man, but in the secret place, in the hidden place, where we can truly call God our beloved. It speaks to me of worship that is pure and true that will stand the test of time and suffering and still remain devoted. A love that is faithful, sacrificial, passionate and generous. A love that is captivated, love on its knees before the beloved. And if there's one thing that I'm learning in life about worship, and I think this applies not just to gathered worship, but to our life as worship, 
Oh, is that there is this continual battle or fight to keep worship as something that is flowing from a place of intimacy with God, even though it is for him. Flowing from a place of adoration, love on its knees. We never want worship in its many forms to just become a burden. Something that we resent because of how much it can ask of us and the cost but instead we are continually choosing to lift our eyes up, to keep our gaze upon the one we worship, our beloved, who is worthy of all, knowing that worship is bringing something of worth to the worthy one, that simply we just want to bless his heart in some meaningful way, remembering always that we love him because he first loved us, Wouldn't it be amazing to have a faith and devotion like Job, who we read about in the Bible, who was put through the fire, test after test, losing not only his wealth, but his children, and then suffering from a painful skin disease, sores covering his body. His wife, speaking from her grief, I'm sure, said, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job in his pain and suffering said, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And as we sing, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. But my heart will choose to stay. Blessed be your name. Not an easy thing to sing. What faithfulness that Job would continue despite the pressure to keep his eyes fixed on the Almighty and live a righteous life of worship before God. It's incredible. What I witnessed in my parents' lives as I was growing up was the value they placed on nurturing their relationship with God the value they saw in intimacy with him, and how this fueled their love for him, overflowing as worship and a deep hunger for more of God. It was genuine. And in the end, this hunger led them to the vineyard in the States, where they encountered more of the presence of God and the move of the Holy Spirit. There they tasted something of what their thirsty hearts had been crying out for, Despite the fear of what that might look like or the offense it might cause as it rattles people's preconceptions of how God should behave, they chose to lean in. And in my eyes, they were very brave. And through their pursuit of God, they felt led to start a little messy vineyard in their lounge. And through that, I have encountered the Holy Spirit in many powerful, tangible ways that have become part of my testimony. Although I was only young, I knew that the living God was revealing himself to me. There was no way I could doubt his existence and power, and he captivated my heart. Not the experiences, although they were amazing, but God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His presence is a place of sustaining delight, a feast, a banquet of beauty, 
that our minds struggle to comprehend and explain. But in that place, our spirits come alive. And I encountered a living God who is not far away and out of reach, but a good and wise father who was reaching out for his children with arms outstretched to come and know him and to know his heart, the depths of his unconditional love and amazing grace. He doesn't want to be kept at arm's length, but invites us into a place of deep and precious intimacy, a place where we let our guard down, where we say, yes, you can have it all. And I learned how precious worship is to the Father and how he uses worship to draw us close, to draw us into his presence and into his arms, where no walls need to dwell, where there is no longer a curtain between us, separating us from the Holy One, separating the holy from the unholy, a place of restoration, healing and freedom, a place where his perfect love drives out all fear. And I remember one occasion in worship, and I was probably about 16, so it's about 23 years ago. <laughs> ah! <laughs> and we were singing a David Roos song called Sweet Mercy. Let your mercy fall from heaven. You remember that one? Sweet mercy fall from heaven. And I just started to do this crazy thing with my arms. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> and it felt like I was being unraveled. It was like a mummy being unraveled from all those bandages, all the things binding it up. And it felt like I was being um, unraveled from something, and it was so intense. And I'm pretty sure it was from self-consciousness, which is, as a teenager, something you know, that can be so prevalent and hinder the way we would desire to worship. It was also very much a reminder to me that God's hand was upon me when I felt so different from my peers, when I felt like I had no security in a group and actually no desire to even be doing what everybody else was doing at that time. It was, it was quite strange. I'd been so kind of captivated by the Holy Spirit and his presence in this place. There was nothing else I really wanted. His presence always reminded me that I had my place in him and that he was going to be moving and still moving and keep moving in me. And a few weeks ago, um, I just need a tissue, excuse me. This is bound to happen. Um, I had the, the privilege of going, um, thank you, of going um, along to the Arise conference for a night. I took James's place as pastor, senior pastor. <laughs> we got to sit in the pastor seats. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was such a blessing. It was, it was a night and it was such a blessing. Dad took me along. And we were singing, um, oh, you can have it all, Lord, every part of my world. Come take this life and breathe on this heart that is now yours. And I was just imagining Jesus. I often like to imagine myself as a child sitting on Jesus' lap. You know, he says, let the little children come to me. And I often just imagine, you know, in my mind, picture myself on Jesus' lap, just 
leaning into him, that place of safety and comfort and rest when life is so intense. And I leant my head in, and I felt, this is in my mind, that he had put something in my hands. And I looked down and I saw um, two swords, huge swords. And I felt like he was saying to me, um, this is not something powerless, Anna, but a force. And he showed me how these swords were like conductor battens, you know, in an orchestra. And he was kind of reconfirming to me in that moment my call as a worship leader, but also his worship kind of as intercession. And I opened my eyes, and on the screen behind the, the huge worship team, this massive screen was a picture of a sword. And I had no idea that the theme of the conference was the good fight. I had no idea. I hadn't seen that picture. I'd only been there for the night, you know? And it was this amazing confirmation. The way he speaks when we allow him, the way he can speak to us in those moments is incredible. As Dan Wilt says, worship is not only expressive, but impressive. As we come and offer our yes, even if it's just in a moment, God uses that moment to impress things upon our hearts and minds, transforming us into the people he has intended us to be, more fully alive in him, aligned with him and reflecting his glory. Worship is a place of formation. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our, our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. In Genesis, we see God kneeling on the earth that he created, tenderly holding dust in his hand. And I imagine the master potter, the great weaver, beautifully forming a creature of his delight pressing and molding the clay, his fingerprints leaving impressions all over the work of his hands. And then he gazes upon this man with unconditional love and affection. He leans his face in close and breathes. And he breathes life and promise into his child and he says, you are good and you are mine. And nothing, no nothing can separate you from my love. The father adores his child. In a way, it's almost like the first act of worship. The father adoring his child. He doesn't forget how we have been made. He doesn't forget weaving us together in the secret place, in the hidden place of our mother's womb. He doesn't simply create and abandon us. This is a God who enters into the joy and the delights of our lives and who, su who also suffers with, suffers for, and suffers among his children. 
This is a God who takes on flesh and blood, who incarnates to make his point. And his point is that we are loved, that we are pursued, and that we belong to the Father. And I know as we worship him, as we make the decision to declare his goodness even from within the valleys, as we lift up our gaze toward him and off ourselves, we are drawn and led into a place of communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we find ourselves, whether we are aware of it or not, being held in his gaze not under the harsh glare of condemnation, but as the apple of his eye. And he leans in close, and he says, take courage. You are mine, and there is nothing, no nothing, that can separate you from my love. And he breathes upon us, filling the depths of our souls with life. And he kisses us with his peace, and our hearts are moved to respond. We love God because he first loved us. I remember hearing a talk a few years ago by Jonathan Helser, um, who writes beautiful worship songs. And he was imagining the throne room in heaven. He described from Revelation 4 how there are 24 thrones surrounding God's throne. Seated on the 24 thrones are 24 elders dressed in white and wearing crowns of gold. There are also four living creatures around God's throne. And whenever they give glory to God, the 24 elders fall down upon the glassy sea and lay their crowns down in worship day and night saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you have created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. It's an incredible scene of awe and wonder. We try so hard to fathom it, but can't. And as Jonathan Helzer was pondering this scene, he posed this question. I wonder who picks up the elders' crowns every time they lay them down in worship. Perhaps God himself kneels down and gently picks up their crowns and crowns them again. And then they fall down in worship again. And he picks up their crowns again in this beautiful cycle and rhythm of adoration and love. Our worship, our praise, all of it is a response. It is vertical. Yet God doesn't keep it that way. And although we can never ever make worship about us and what we get out of it, we can come with heart seeking to glorify God and yearning to meet with him. The weight of it does not fall upon the worship leader. But as a body with hearts of humility, we come ready to bring what we can as an offering to bless our Father. And with an awareness and expectation that he will be moving in this place as we worship. He indeed inhabits the praises of his people. For he is longing to commune with his children. Even in our messiness, even in our brokenness even in our imperfections and struggles, even if we are walking through valleys of grief and can hardly say one good thing about him, even if we are in a state of doubt, still he loves and still he yearns for. He empowers the feeble and infuses the powerless with increasing strength. 
Even young people faint and get exhausted. Athletic ones may stumble and fall. But those who wait for Yahweh's grace will experience divine strength. They will rise up on soaring wings and fly like eagles, run their race without growing weary, and walk through life without giving up. It's Isaiah 40. Songs and music have a way of unlocking our hearts. Words resonate within us and stir response. Words of longing can sometimes be hard to sing, especially if we are unfamiliar with doing so. They can make us feel vulnerable and weak before him. But you know, this is perfect. In this place of offering, God moves. He speaks. He forms. He breathes. His presence is such a gift of grace. And I'm often just lost for words as I lead worship and sense his holiness around us. And it feels like actually the only way to respond is to lie on the floor in awe of him who is present. The Lord of hosts who is making himself known to us. We don't deserve his presence. We can't earn it. But he comes and he delights himself in the praises of his people. He sees hearts that truly desire him, not to control him, but to abide in him. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Psalm 84. The place of the altar, the place of death, sacrifice and offering. The place of the cross is where we say, not my will, but yours be done. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is also the place of abundant life. Isn't it a beautiful image? In our worship and communion with the Father, we are strengthened in Christ to live a life of worship as living sacrifices before him. In this position of worship, we become, as N.T. Wright describes, like angled mirrors, Reflecting the Father's love and care to creation around us through what we're doing. And in turn, we are able to offer back the accumulated praise of his creation. Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the message translation reads like this. It's a bit longer. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is just the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. 
Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Living then, as every one of you does, in pure grace, it's important that you not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing his goodness, this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us not by what we do for him. From a place of intimacy with God, abiding in his love, we are able to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, representing his kingdom on earth and bringing, his, bringing glory to him as his image bearers. Worshippers who worship in spirit and truth, God's kingdom agents, to quote James. We cannot do this in our own strength, but only as lovers on our knees before our beloved. Don't let serving God become a heavy burden. I know it is easier said than done. There'll always be times when we just have to get on and do what we've committed to doing, but that's part of serving, isn't it? Otherwise, there'll be weeks here when we simply don't have a worship team or a pastor or clean bathrooms or clean cups or kind people caring for our kids out there. Our obedience is worship and very much a part of our formation. But in order for it to be sustained, we need to stay connected to the vine. And that connection needs to be protected There are many things that will wrestle for our attention and time that will push to be more valuable, more necessary, more urgent, that will try to steal our gaze. But what can be more valuable than God himself? Surely our greatest desire as his followers, as his kids, is to be in his presence. He is not boring or dull He is the all-powerful, almighty creator of heaven and earth, and sometimes we just need to allow him time to show us that. So turn your phone off. Hide yourself away, even if it's late at night when the kids are finally asleep. Abide at his feet, whether through worship or prayer or feasting on his word or silence or whatever God leads you to do asking the Holy Spirit to lead you to increase your awareness of his presence and then cultivate it. For all we do flows from our communion and our union with the lover of our souls. I'm just going to end with a poem by George Herbert, and I know some of you are familiar with it, and hopefully it will make sense to you. It's called Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. I guess, I answered, worthy to be here, love said, you shall be he. 
I the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. And love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat.